Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, uh, we have a very special guest. We're joined by Jay Pratt, who is the president of the Bear Care Group. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're very glad to have you. So I first uh, sort of interacted with you uh, through the Bear Care Group. Um but you have a pretty interesting background and a sort of a wide range of experience. So uh, do you want to sort of tell us a little bit about that experience and um, uh, talk a little bit about yourself? So I am, uh, I'm Canadian. I was born and raised in a little tiny town in Southern Alberta uh, called Fort McLeod. And we weren't really close to zoos, animals, like there was always wildlife and nature. You could throw a rock and, you know, we were in Waterton or Banff National Parks. Um, but looking at it as a career, I mean, they just, you had to be a veterinarian or a farmer or something. And neither of those had appealed to me. And so, of course, getting out of school, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to college or university. I'll be like a lawyer or something. I'm smart. I'm supposed to do something like that. And a friend that uh, knew about my love of animals, because I loved animals since I was like that tall, um, is like, hey, there's this place outside of the city that's not the zoo that has all these big cats and animals I think you'd like. I went out, I started volunteering. Within a week, I was working there. Within a month, I was helping run the place. While I was getting my degree, switched my degree over to zoology. My uh, master's that came later was in zoo and aquarium leadership. And I just, it was that epiphany, that choir of angels moment that I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and it was, it hasn't always been easy to kind of get to where I've been, you know, working at and wanting to do. Um, I did for a while, uh, train animals for the film industry. I thought that would be something super interesting and exciting. And it just ended up not being the career that I thought it was. It was kind of glamorous from the outside, but inside it didn't have that attention to animal care, um, that I really found that was important to me. And so I got back into zoos, uh, made the relocated to the United States several years ago and then started um, working my way up, you know, to where now I am, where I am in leadership here at uh, Miller Park Zoo in Bloomington, Illinois. And it's just, it's been 30 years of really figuring out the things that I loved and painstakingly, but carefully pro making it a, a priority to, you know, to do what I loved and work my way up slowly and methodically. So I know I have the background, I know I have the skills so that I can take care of not only the animals, but now the people that like to take care of the animals that may have similar backgrounds and passions to what I do. So it's been a long journey that's had me all over North America and then provided me with opportunities to travel the world and meet a lot of great people. And yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, that's great. No, it sounds like, uh, you've been on an awesome journey and you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear everybody's everybody's journey to get into this industry because it can be, you know, it can vary so much. And it is an, an amazing industry to be in, especially one that's so passion driven. And your results, you know, uh, your your product that you put out results in happy animals and happy people. It's a pretty, pretty great place to be. So but we, uh, we, all, we all know that like nobody gets into animal care for the money. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not as obvious sometimes. So um, so one of the things that you've been, uh, obviously pretty involved in is the, the bear care group. 
Um, it's a, a group that I've had the pleasure of working with a, a couple times uh, through the conference. So, uh, you know, uh, for those of that don't know what the Bear Care Group is, do you want to sort of uh, go with an overview of of what it is and how you sort of got involved with that? So, the Bear Care Group is a uh, we're a nonprofit. We have been dedicated since um, we founded in, uh, the inception of the group uh, years ago to helping just bear caregivers around the world, anywhere, no matter where you come from, we are utterly nonpartisan. If you are a circus, if you are a roadside facility, if you are an accredited zoo, if you are a rescue organization, we're gonna be there to help anybody who you know is looking for help on how they can just be better caregivers and provide those resources to like help them take care of uh, the bears. Um, when it started years ago, there had been an attempt at something similar at a conference in California. And while well, that ended up not being a particularly repeatable performance, it did indicate to um, several of us there that there was a need and a, an opportunity for something like the Bear Care Group. And that was where actually it was uh, our other, the co-founder, uh, Elsa Polson. She and I worked with uh, some of the other folks who were on our original board to found and create the Bear Care Group. And so we sort of started small. We started with a few conferences, you know, in the local area in North America, close to where we were located, inviting people from, again, all avenues to come to present on issues that were relevant to bears, to bear uh, keepers. Um, and those were really successful. And they started off smaller, like maybe we had like, you know, between 30 and 40, maybe 50 people. We were in Banff, we were in San Francisco. And then it started growing and recognizing that this just didn't affect obviously North American bears and people. Elsa's vision had always been to make sure we could apply our mission across the world to help bear caregivers everywhere. So we were pairing with organizations were joining us such as Animals Asia, uh, Wildlife SOS, um, Four Paws, uh, PBI, like we had all of these groups with international footprints and interests that were already attending and joining and talking at our, our conferences. And so we started partnering and working with them to host either international conferences, a larger version of what we just hosted uh, a few uh, weeks ago, where everybody's welcome to come and present papers and there's panels and there's workshops and discussions. But we also then decided to start focusing our efforts on those areas where we could do the most good as a workshop. And so uh, some examples, Romania, um, India, we worked with Wildlife SOS, uh, we worked with uh, Animals Asia in Vietnam, where we went to the location, worked with one of our partner groups and provided workshops, helping the people in that area deal with specific issues, not only with you know their bears, but surrounding that whole kind of like industry, whether it was bear bile farming, dancing bears, um, and really helping improve the skill sets and then working to provide resources so that everybody from managers down to um, animal caregivers who might not have had the money to be able to attend could still have access to it. So we had those two approaches and both were really successful. Um, we've had great feedback from them. They've allowed uh, our board uh, to teach and to train and to help people around the world. And then those are the people that are still coming and they're still contributing to like the virtual conference and will help us decide you know, what our next steps will be. So it's really been amazing. Um, unfortunately, uh, for all of us, we did lose Elsa Polson, uh, several years ago. Uh, she, uh, we, pa she passed from breast cancer 
and I inherited the mantle of president. Um, I am now the original founder, but we have a great strong board of directors, some who have been with us for uh, several years, some who are newer that are helping us along and um, finding new ways and giving us new ideas and insight into what's uh, happening out there, but it's working. Um, and with everybody else's help and input and guidance on what they love and what they want to see, that helps us plan for the future as well. So I know that was a lot, but I mean, it's a little group, but we do so much and we try to reach so many people that it's just, it's something we are all very passionate about too. Yeah, no, thank you. That was, uh, it, that's the one thing that I've really noticed about the bear care group is I feel like the, it's so intentional in the way that everything is chosen and the direction of the group is towards, you know, having actionable things that the keepers and the people that are actually looking after these bears can really like do to impact the welfare of the bears. You know, it's so all of the presentations at, at the conferences that I've seen and all the information that you guys put out is, is so focused on that. And it's, it's quite often uh, inexpensive and, uh, you know, it, it's it's very accessible information, um, and it's yeah, you can really tell uh, the intention behind behind that. So, well, and it's great feedback to hear because we do really try to evolve. Our first couple of conferences were kind of you know whatever people threw at us and whatever we could put out there, and we've evolved each time to say, well, this was really popular. Like this year, like uh, with AZA releasing, um, you know, their new well-being uh, plan and welfare being really a part and a focus internationally uh, of papers and studies and public attention, we thought it was a great topic to then how do we now take that topic and discuss it and apply it in a way that's relevant to those people that are taking care of their bears every day. And we do really work hard at that. So now what we've started doing is picking themes and then finding those people like yourselves that we can say, hey, this is where we're going to go. We were pretty sure you can talk about enrichment in a way that it benefits bear welfare. So we can tailor those. And then the end result is to provide something that is usable, that is a resource that's available for everybody, regardless of whether you're from the world's most, you know, prosperous, you know, accredited facility that can afford a lot, or you're somebody who, you know, is working part-time at a little zoo in India, we want to make sure that the information is relevant, usable, and applies across all those. So that is great feedback to hear. And I hope others have that exact same experience. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I have to say, if uh, if you do take care of bears or, you know, you know, somebody who does, I'll link the Bear Care Group's uh, website and uh, you can check out some of the stuff they're doing because, yeah, there are some great resources and uh, the board is uh, full of excellent, super knowledgeable people. So um, at uh, the present at the conference um, that I presented at recently, uh, you were giving a presentation, which I didn't uh, managed to see, but uh, it was called "Using Basic and Advanced Training Techniques to Assess and Improve Bear Welfare." Uh, that sounded very, very interesting. Do you want to sort of give a sparks note on like sort of what that was about and uh, that sort of concept? So. I always end up doing at every conference, every workshop, I end up doing training 101. My background um, as a keeper, when I first started uh, you know, working a billion years ago as a caregiver, um, it was animal behavior and operant conditioning and learning that just interested me the most. And I became known first, it was the tiger trainer uh, when I was in Dallas. Then when I was in Atlanta, I was known as the panda guy for many years because of the, the training that we did there. I got to go to, uh, to China and work with the Chengdu uh, research base. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And so that was kind of always my go-to niche. Um, it graduated into other like higher uh, level things, but training was always what I did. But after so many years of training 101, most of us in this field 
have got the basics. I don't have to redo that. Now, if we go do a targeted workshop, I'm still going to have that session to help yeah. people along. But to elevate that this year and to keep it with our theme, I know how over the years and working with our team so that they all had input, they sent me videos, they sent me pictures and photos and feedback on training projects that they've done um, that can't would allow them to better off assess how their animal's doing, because we know welfare is that study of one, how is an individual animal doing? So we know that training can actually improve that. But overall, when you're looking at an overall assessment program, if you have to report to somebody like USDA, AZA, EAZA on what you're doing to improve animal welfare, those interactions allow us better assessment tools. And the basic to advanced is was to address that, I mean, I've been places and with our workshops, I will go and with Dr. Heather Bacon, we will fresh start off with an animal that has never been trained before, has minimal interaction with a human being, and we'll show them how quickly you can do some really basic behaviors and assess mobility, gait, um, body condition, their willingness to interact. You can maybe get a look at their mouth, their eyes close up. And then, of course, there's so many papers and we all end up fascinated with, you know, the first time somebody taught like a polar bear to at this conference, it was stick their head out into a plexiglass cage for x-rays of their muzzle and their nasal ca uh, yeah. cavity. That's an amazing process that falls into the advanced category, but it's all the same route. It started off with cue behavior reward, which again, anybody anywhere can grab a target stick and do some basic operant learning and training with these animals that lets them get a better feel for how they're doing physically, mentally, and just overall. And I think that was kind of my approach was really those techniques. And I paired them with uh, an assessment tool and we can probably talk about that a little bit, but for welfare assessment, I paired it with examples of how you could use this particular ability, basic or advanced, to answer more specific welfare assessment questions. So it was kind of that combining the practical with the scientific and the, the data gathering piece that I was I was really targeting for there. So um, it, we got great feedback on it. We had a lot of questions, so I was happy with the the results. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds super interesting. And and yeah, I think nowadays, especially, you know, uh, with all of these amazing behaviors coming out of zoos, like the possibilities are endless as far as the conservation projects that you can participate in, uh, you know, the as you said, like the welfare questions that you can answer now with training, uh, it's yeah, that sounds it sounds very, very interesting uh, as a as a topic. The key aspect and we know um, for those of us who have done a lot of training in that, it's the same thing with your dog at home. It's trust. Yeah. And it is amazing what some places have been able to do for these advanced behaviors. And like, I know some papers where, um, you know, I've heard like conservation training where animals like out have participated in their own conservation, but they've never even had human contact. And there's some really amazing stuff that's been done along those lines. But that very basic level of relationship building, when we've worked with organizations that have brought in uh, like circus bears. Uh, one of Elsa's books was uh, Bearless Story. And it's a mm. really amazing account of how one of the Suarez circus polar bears, you know, with this background of like, you know, abusive training, neglect, inappropriate, you know, history and a poor relationship with people came around to have better interactions with with their caregivers and then with other bears to where she actually became a fully socialized and successful polar bear. But there's so many times we've been involved in rescues and we talked about this with the panels where I've worked with folks from 
uh, the PETA Foundation, from USDA, from various other agencies, where animals that we've gone to help or we've assessed, like we pull in bears and other animals that have no history of human contact, or they've been so neglected or abused, um, or animals that have been rescued from the bio industry, or dancing bears who have only known pain and suffering. How can we use that basic understanding of trust to help these animals recover and get through and understand and adapt to their new surroundings. So for me, I love seeing the training. I've been involved with those with tigers, with bears over the years. But to me, that most fundamental thing we can get through to people is how big of a difference one person, a handful of like, you know, favorite bear treats and some time can actually make to those animals. And that's seeing that change around the world, you know, as we've been able to do these has been absolutely just so rewarding for me. And it's one of the things that keeps me going. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's very interesting. And especially with everything around, you know, shifting their cognitive bias towards one that's a lot more positive and that builds that, that trust and that resilience. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of bias toward being in a state of, of, uh, you know, positive welfare. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And yeah, it couldn't be more rewarding taking an animal out of a situation like that and, you know, giving it a chance to live a good life. That's yeah. Right. And having a hand in that and being able to help them understand and shape it. I mean, I know I can still know, I know every single one of them where even in zoos, where it's just an animal that was managed old school or in historic ways, you know, hoses or sound or horse or yeah. whatever else that are just terrified. The ones that are horrified or freak out when a veterinarian shows up because mm -hmm. of conditioning and learned responses, when you can turn that around to all of a sudden they're participating, the vets, they're doing blood draws with them. Like they are willing to come up and do a training demonstration in front of visitors or guests or something like that. Whereas that animal would have been hiding in the corner or avoiding or even being aggressive and like trying to threaten you away. Those transitions for me personally are what have fueled my work through all these years and they're how, what made it all worthwhile. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, it's amazing. So we, we touched on this in the, in the last question, um, but this, uh, the AZA shifts to well-being, and uh, my last podcast was actually going through that uh, strategic framework document um, and talking a little bit about that and what I thought, uh, you know, it was, you know, talking about and what I thought it meant for this sort of industry. Uh, I'd love to hear, you know, what you think the impacts of this shift to well-being and, and what your thoughts around this are. Um after I wrap my head around the uh, change in uh, like wording, um, which was a very deliberate choice, I was lucky enough to mm -hmm. actually, I attended the, the AZA for us Canadians, AZA yeah. <laughs> all the time here, um, conference virtually, I wasn't able to attend in person. And the rollout and the release of that was really interesting and dynamic because they've put so much work and effort into it with the task force and the research and what do we want this messaging to be? And we've spent years about like worried about anthropomorphizing. Like, you know, like, oh, we, you know, we can't call an animal happy. And Elsa taught us years ago, and I've continued on with the concept of critical anthropomorphism, that you know what, a bear can be happy. It's not just necessarily the same thing that we would assume was happy. So that puts it into a different framework. And so seeing AZA come out and recognize something like that and say, look, we know animals can as assume a state of happiness, which we're gonna more scientifically refer to as positive welfare. And the shift to well-being, you know, puts it in a place where 
it affects all of us. Anybody can relate to that. Human beings don't really like relate so much to the concept of welfare, or we have, you know, a negative con connotation to it for those of us that are not as financially able to, you know, uh, make it through life. But well-being is well-being. And so I think it's going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of switching, and hopefully we'll all get on the same page with that. But we know what it is they're talking about. But this is a model that I think is working with and is similar to what I've seen um, Waza uh, working with over the years. I know Yaza and other groups um, very often. Uh, I think some of the strongest work for animal rights and animal welfare have come out of um, Europe, uh, the United Kingdom, that area. And so this is really getting kind of on board with that. And I've been an expert federal witness um, in several cases regarding and dealing with animal welfare, some from the Tiger King, some from some other places. And um, having this come from a professional organization that we can recognize here in North America as an industry standard is really critical because it sets the bar and it's not the gold standard. This is something that any caregiver anywhere should be able to think about. Even if you don't have the money and you don't have a big technical system and whatever else, you can be marking down and you can be observing appropriate positive changes in welfare and signs that those might not actually be there. For example, the panel we talked about, our panel discussion was how do you address and recognize signs of poor welfare in maybe suboptimal facilities? And it's just one of those things that I think with AZA speaking out as a group to not only accredited institutions, but that information's out there for everybody. I think it's going to be a model we can all refer to and is gonna pair really well with IAZA, with WAZA, with groups around the world. And it sets that tone about what, what well-being is why it's important, what we should do about it, and why we should care. And that reference point as an industry standard means we can apply it, whether it's assessing how to improve and get rid of some of these places that maybe shouldn't be open, how can we improve the places that are and are trying to figure out how they can do better, and all those templates and all those resources are going to be there. So I'm excited about it. It is so new. Um, I went from training for my focus to very much a welfare-based uh, you know, approach to things for the last several years. I've designed several welfare tools. I've implemented them across uh, several areas. I've used them as examples of uh, in federal court on how and why animals were not receiving you know, the care that they actually needed. So having those templates out there in a more consistent fashion that anybody can go to the website and look for and find and use is going to be game changing, I think, because nobody has an excuse not to anymore. And it also pushes them with an ongoing task force and commitment to well-being to not stagnate. We need yeah. to be able to continue to improve now and always be at the forefront incorporating new science, working with other organizations. And I think that's going to keep it dynamic, which is really, really important. Yeah. And that sort of segues into what I was uh, wanted to talk about next, which is uh, yeah, what what stood out for me for this uh, with this AZA well-being and you know just this general sentiment in the the sort of welfare industry right now is uh, you know a few years ago it was about saying okay we're all going to start you know really assessing welfare on a larger scale and really asking those sort of questions uh, on a regular basis and now we're really shifting toward okay we're assessing welfare how can we make action plans and action items to make sure we're improving welfare and what can we do with this this uh this data that we're coming up with and we're you know that now that we're doing these assessments uh and that's what i think the sort of where the whole industry is going toward is actually 
making these animals, uh, you know, transitioning them into a state of well-being as opposed to, um, you know, just assessing it. So I, I would love to hear if you have any sort of um, advice for people uh, looking to do that or uh, if you have any sort of methods you want to share or anything like that in order to uh, really be applying these to positively impact animal welfare. So for caregivers out there, um, there's a lot of access. Like you can you could contact the bear care group. You can email me, you can reach out to AZA or others, and they're gonna have some ideas or some frameworks. Like I've shared like the animal welfare assessment tool with like so many facilities and places now, like I can't even keep count. And when I designed it, it was designed and it's been through practice. Like this didn't work, this scoring system was you know too complex, but it was broken down into subcategories. So it's basically yes, no, maybe sort of somewhat answers that then help you come up with a score, but it's broken up into categories. So for example, environmental, uh, behavioral, veterinary care. So when, if you see low scores, it also helps you see where your lowest ones are and start targeting kind of that area. Um, and it's, it's a way to be able to look at it and come up with a structured way where if you're already doing this, okay, now how am I monitoring this? If there was what I'm identifying or we're seeing as a poor welfare, you know, standard or, you know, something that needs to improve, What's our follow-up? How do we improve it? And getting your team on board. But mm -hmm. this is not just for those places in fully supportive facilities that are already engaged in doing this. This is a concept. And I mean, you go back to like, you know, Judge Stewart years ago with, I know it when I see it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We know bad welfare when we see it. And we've all visited facilities or seen evidence of it online, or, you know, we watched the Tiger King and we saw examples of really poor welfare. And some of what we talked about in our panel and my, my personal takeaway message for everybody was be brave. And if you see something, say something. Um, you may not be able to personally affect what you see in another facility, but there are avenues out there. There's USDA, there's groups like HSUS and PETA that you can actually reach out to for assistance, for reporting. Um, you can talk to local authorities. You can reach out to everyone from Humane to... Um, the attorney general's office. Um, I've worked with state attorney general's office on some of these cases who have actually helped with either animal cruelty or neglect cases. And there's ways that you can start working at improving the welfare of those animals, just like Jill Robinson and those people that are like first decided, I'm going to help that bear in that bile cage, even though this isn't my place. You can do those steps and start in like getting people involved and getting them knowing. Then once we're able to help get those animals out, you know, how can we start improving that from the basics? And again, it's providing knowing each bear for what they are as a species and be like, hey, this bear needs to climb, this bear needs to dig, this bear needs to den, and then finding those seasonal approximations, the behavior-based husbandry that Elsa, the bear care group, we've all been teaching for so many years and applying those known successful husbandry and care aspects. And then are we successful? Because that's the other piece. And even if you don't have forms and you don't have anything on the computer and you're not required to enter it into Zims, you as a caregiver and as an individual can look and say, I did this. This was my welfare input. And my hope was this would happen. Now, maybe this didn't happen, but something may or may not have happened in there. Was I successful in improving welfare? And then you take that and you learn from it and you continue to either do more, do better, do different. Um, and so you can really affect it on such an everyday day-to-day -day basis of improving it. And I think that mindset 
is really what's critical. And it's when you when you ask about like how do we deliver better programs and what can we do? It's like using some of these tools, but be committed to it and don't be complacent. Mm. I have worked in places, I've had colleagues, bosses, managers, places where they're just like, oh, this is fine. We're doing enough. And you hear things like, oh, you know, they're 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 in good shape. Oh, they've had babies, so they're healthy. Uh, like there's always these things that justify mm. not making these types of changes. We don't have the staff, we don't have the time. There's always something we can do, even if it's a little tiny bit every day and we're planning ahead, there's always something we can do to do better. So having that welfare lens of, have I done something because I'm the one with all the tools and resources caring for this animal, have I done something that has made a difference? And Elsa always said it best when she said, when you look at any animal and you meet them, who are you and what can I do for you? And when you know your animals and you know your individuals, you know, when you think of that lens and that question, who are you and what I'm doing, has it made a difference? Do I know that your life is not the same or okay? Is it getting better because of my efforts? And if the answer is yes, then you keep going and you're doing something right. And if you're not sure the answer is no, try something different and reach out to the folks that are willing to help you because there's always someone that will. Yeah, it, it is really such a collaborative industry as a whole. And the people that should be helping or really, really want to help. And there are organizations like the Bear Care Group. There's lots of taxes specific groups that'll help. Uh, and there's also, yeah, larger organizations uh, like AZA are really trying to be at the forefront of this. And uh, there's lots of fantastic resources. Um, well, and it can be it can be daunting because I yeah. mean, if you were suddenly presented with, so for example, when um, AZA, the, the, the accreditation standard 150 came out a few years back and all of a sudden it was like, all animals must be assessed annually and blah, blah, blah. There was sort of a template, but there was no specific, how is this gonna be assessed? How do you record this? How do you show this? And then when people started developing tools, like I know full well, mine's a few pages long. I've now simplified it, but it's it can be really daunting to think, oh my God, I've gotta do this for each animal every year and that. Mm -hmm but even just committing to understanding, creating your own sort of inputs, outputs and assessment program, even if it's in a log, using your enrichment and your training and you know, providing seasonal food changes and like, did they den up this year when mm -hmm. they never have before? Those are indicators that you're doing the right you know, thing. And then you can figure out which tool is the right one for you to help fix that. And as you learn more, you'll get more involved and it will become less daunting because you've got people there to, to help you out. Because I can tell you, jumping in, and having to create something from scratch when everyone else um, at other facilities had had completely different experiences and different mm -hmm. approaches to it, that was really daunting. And then getting everybody to try and use it and understand it, it takes yeah. a lot of teaching, training, and it takes patience. But as an yeah. animal caregiver, you better have some patience already. So this is just one more way of employing that and showing you can do it. Yeah. And that's the thing. The more you dig into a lot of these animal welfare concepts and assessing welfare and, you know, promoting that state of well-being, the more you realize that like nobody has just figured this out and, you know, just knows exactly uh, what to do and how to do it and has has a playbook in mind that they're like, hey, oh, yeah, you just do all these things and then your your bear is going to be in a state of well-being like no one has figured no one has figured that out and all it all it takes is really a a lot of people that care a lot to put a lot of time into this thing and you know we're getting there one step at a time and right. and again with the uh one of the things that you mentioned there was was your team 
And I think that is a super important thing to to talk about because um, a lot of the time, uh, the animals that I've seen that I can really attest to being in the highest state of well-being uh, are often cared for by teams of of people that are very cohesive. Uh, they're they have this sort of system of of checks and balances, and they're critical of what they're doing. They're asking those questions. They're having those conversations around, like, "Hey, what does this behavior mean in this animal? Like, what do we think it's trying to tell us with this sort of action?" And I think fostering that sort of Mm-hmm. Um, culture is, is what is most important when you're when you're in that sort of small team animal caregiver environment. Like it, it is, it's so important. Well, and we we all run into obstacles. Like we've all been like, oh, I want to. It was an interesting uh, when we were in uh, uh, Scotland. We had a, a great talk and a great discussion about like you know doing uh, seasonal metabolic changes to nutrition and to diets. Mm. And you know one of the it was Douglas Richardson who was talking about how like you know. Your nutritionist and your veterinarian is going to want to make 2%, 3%, 5% changes and increases, which we know when that hyperphagia kicks in, you don't need that. You need like 155% mm. change. So how do we convince them of that? And these tools, as we're collecting data paired with other uh, places, their experiences and you know their information will help us eat small teams, big teams, make those changes that we know from our learning is going are going to be most impactful on the welfare of those bears. And I think that that's something that this process is going to help us with when you have someone that doesn't understand or who's making decisions or is in a more kind of incremental scientific approach, it's really going to help us demonstrate to them what a difference it can actually make when you start comparing those, you know, welfare assessments of inputs versus outputs, what the animal's mm. telling us, because you can add 5% like, you know, every two weeks during summer, but if your bear is still freaking out, pacing, you know, back and forth, acting aggressively to staff and doesn't calm down, you've obviously not done enough during that phase. And we can demonstrate that um, yeah. using these types of tools and scoring. So instead of it being anecdotal, or anecdotal you're presenting evidence. And that's yeah. something a lot of times that's really helpful, especially with managers, veterinarians, nutritionists, to help them understand. And I think that's the other side of this that, yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it can be a pain in the ass to have to do all this and learn all this and apply it and um, record it all. But the benefits are you can demonstrate to anybody, USDA, AZA, anybody that is looking, hey, this is what we're actually doing. This is how we're assessing and providing care. And then we can now use this data for studies to contribute to our better understanding of bear husbandry and management, um, and then even address very specific problems or overcome obstacles that may be more personnel based and just require that bit of information that's going to help them understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, You've mentioned uh, inputs and outputs a few times, and that's a concept that comes up quite a lot in in animal welfare assessments. Uh, Do you maybe want to, for those that don't know, uh, sort of talk about what you mean by inputs and outputs? No, that's, that's great. Um, so when you are, anything you do, anything that we do as caregivers, changing the environment, giving them access overnight, altering their food schedule, giving them enrichment, engaging them in a training program, anything that we do or affect their environment with is an input. Um, if we can control it and we can change it and we're the one modifying those resources, those that's what we consider inputs. Those are the things we do 
generally with the attempt to create a positive welfare state and elicit species typical behaviors, improve relationships and the like. So that's what uh, uh, we look at it in as it inputs. And earlier work in animal welfare focused almost solely on inputs. And it's great if your intent is to like, you know, try and create things, but you can't just focus on what we did. It's interesting to me that AZA, I, uh, I attended a, a diversity workshop uh, earlier this year, and they had a discussion of intention versus impact. And I think it's really evident when you look, compare inputs, and I'll talk about outputs in a moment, but you can have all the best intent with your inputs, but what is your impact? Did it work? And outputs is what's the animal telling you? So this is your, who are you and what can I do for you? I put in a giant pile of soil in the back and my goal is to let the bear den back there and dig a den over the winter. Well, did it work? Um, maybe then you start looking at, was it not in the right place? Is this animal not ready? Did we not prepare that animal enough? Were they not provided bedding? Is this animal medically incapable because of arthritis? of digging a den. So then you can start looking at it, but your input is, and it looks great, oh, provided it provided a giant pile for the animal to den. Well, if the animal doesn't engage in any denning behaviors and didn't build one, your output was not successful. So all the best intentions, and you know, putting a pile of dirt in, probably still gonna work out in, well for, in some way for that bear, but you really wanna analyze, and the outputs are, does the bear participate in the training program? Does the bear engage in this enrichment that you put in? And are you seeing those goal-defined species typical behaviors that you would want to from the animals? Are you seeing an improvement in welfare? Are you seeing proper metabolic maintenance um, over the course of the year? Are you addressing and easing pain management for geriatric animals or assessing what's happening? And if the answers are the bears are telling you that, you know, he's limping less, he's choosing to participate in training more, he's less aggressive and like, you know, more involved with those animals that are sharing enclosure or habitat space with them. Those are your outputs that you're saying, okay, I did this and this happened. And they're not always going to meet up. It's like enrichment. You put something mm -hmm. in there and all of a sudden the animal used it in a way you never intended. Still good information, still good to remember, but this is where you measure it up and you think all the inputs in the world have to be having an effect and it's the measuring of those outputs what the animals have done in response that is the critical piece of this so that's where we really need people to understand it's like okay i, I did this and it's really important but was it successful what's mm. your bear telling you and you know a keep improving but b if it didn't work why and then how do you change what you've done those inputs to get the outputs you're hoping for. Those are the measurable pieces that demonstrate to us and to anybody that we know what we're doing and we are doing our best for these animals. Because not only is it gonna be based on species, you're gonna get different types of outputs, seasonally, interactive wise, based on what species of bear you have, their age, but individuals, individual animals are gonna have preferences for what does and doesn't work. And since welfare is individual based, you can't say, oh, I did this for all three grizzlies. You know, the inputs, you know, were the same. But if you measure it as individuals, you know, yeah. one of them may have a very different experience. And so then we have to start tailoring our welfare to look at those at those items. And that you can use that approach for anything. Groups of animals, mm -hmm. solitary, you know, as they're aging and whatever. And I think that's the importance is remembering that that's what that difference is. Everything breaks down. Essentially, no matter what your classification scoring system is, what you put in 
and what you got out of it, your inputs and your outputs, and a balance of understanding and recording both of those is what makes a good program. No matter how basic or advanced it is, that's the essentials of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I always talk about the concept of like uh, enrichment versus stuff, because it's only enrichment if the animal is enriched by this experience that you're providing it you know and i feel like by calling uh you know you have like all of your items set up and you by calling them enrichment it's sort of uh setting you up for failure in that way it's it's only enrichment if the animal it's stuff until the animal is having an enriching experience with it and that's what makes it enriching yeah and you touched on something that i i think about often and when you ask the question what do i think about this aza well-being plan. I am hopeful that it will remain dynamic because of the attention given to it and the number of people involved. And I'm going to give you an example as to why it gives me hope. Um, I have developed, and it was actually with Elsa, uh, our enrichment program for many years. It's a behavior-based approach, but Elsa called it life strategies. And instead of it being the standard categories of manipulative, sensory, blah, 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 which it used to be okay to chuck a ball in with an animal Mm -hmm. and call it enrichment and tick the box and you're done for the day without thinking about 24-hour enrichment schedules and seasonality and species typical behaviors and aza set some standards which was great because we needed them but then they didn't really change for a really long time like we still kind of ended up with those same sort of manipulative sensory those basic five categories so evolving those has been really critical and that's what our life strategies approach as we taught bear caregivers around the world and i've employed at most of the facilities that i've worked as well is that goal-based species typical behavioral enrichment program this i think aza is heading the right way with that and i think it's going to incorporate mm-hmm. all of it because as the welfare program improves it's going to pull along training enrichment nutrition programs data records everything's going to end up going with it and i think it's going to become a focus that lets us all do better as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really what matters at the end of the day. So do you have any specific uh, resources? Because you've mentioned uh, a couple things that you would like people to check out that you think, um, I'm sure there's going to be some bear care resources in there, but uh, do you have any specific resources that you think, uh, um, you know, people, care teams should be looking at as far as uh, animal welfare goes? So I do encourage... Um, everybody to uh you can find some of those resources a lot of them at uh the bear care group our website um we also have both a uh, facebook page and we have a facebook group um anybody the group uh can be available to uh, anybody can follow our page you can like the page you can see what's posted for bear caregivers and professionals we do like you know kind of vet the process and then that's where we share a lot more of the detailed information the papers we will engage people in conversations and at any time anybody it's a it can be very active people can post on there and get responses from people around the world almost immediately people will link documents they'll share insights we shared um uh body uh, body condition scoring um, information images as one example that way so all of that's going to be there and if it's not there accessible on the page immediately and we're going to continue to work to update the resources on the website someone in that contact group and network has it i'm going to also put into chat there will be so that you can use it um a link so one of the things uh there's a paper here that actually uh, was discussed in Heather Bacon, Dr. Heather Bacon talked about, and we've used this and talked about this uh, at a couple 
of uh, different conferences. And you can see two of our board members are actually uh, have been help, uh, cr critical in developing this. This paper also takes you and includes a bear specific welfare tool that anybody can use anywhere. And it walks you through it. It talks about the reasoning. So regardless of your skill and knowledge level as a caregiver, or even someone who just cares about bears anyways, yeah. it kind of takes you through it. So there's a lot of opportunities to really research what's being out there, but stay current and look at those groups, um, bear care group, IAZA, AZA, WAZA, that welfare is at the forefront of what they're doing and watch some of the ones that you know we partner with uh groups as well um i've referenced them a couple times but we end up working with um for example animals asia and they do a ton of work not only like rescuing the bears but maintaining these amazing sanctuaries i've had the luck uh, of being able to visit two of them one in china and one in vietnam where they're always constantly managing not only the welfare of all of the bears but of each individual there as well and they post a lot things that have worked things that haven't and if nothing else it's ideas and so yeah. really just staying on top of the people that are really working hard to do good work whether it's zoos um a, like reputable sanctuaries and facilities or organizations like we're all bear caregivers at the bear care group but not all of us are necessarily taking care of bears at the moment but those organizations there are a lot of them around the world that will really provide that information and there's been a ton of really good papers and information that's put out and while we're discussing bears and the bear care group extrapolated out because most of the time this example that i've given you is really bear specific which is helpful for us but you can take an, a version of this or an assessment tool and extrapolate it and generalize it out to any species under your care because it's pretty rare that any of us only gets to take care of bears um, and the same process applies whether you're taking care of like tortoises, whether you're taking care of primates, bears, big cats, elephants, we can apply this exact same approach and, you know, just lends to the improving and uh, the care and welfare of these animals everywhere. So I encourage people to look at those groups, other professional groups, such as the American Association of Zookeepers uh, will provide, you know, resources for those professionals, maybe just starting out in the field, but networking, following links, watching podcasts like this from people that are renowned in the field and associating and working with these groups very closely. So they're not giving you, you know, random side information, you know, as a, a little bit of a hustle over there. But if you've been working with and pairing with known reputable organizations, groups, sanctuary zoos, and you're putting out some papers and some information and some advice, chances are it's going to be helpful and it's useful. Um, so we got specific examples, but there's a lot of really general networking things out there that in a short period of time can help provide you with some specific advice and answers as well. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I will link everything uh, that you have referenced uh, there on uh, in the show notes. So if you want to check out anything that Jay was just talking about, uh, they'll all be uh, down there. Uh, Jay, this was absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, chats like these make me super excited for the future of animal welfare uh, with people like you working on it. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, there's we just talked about 10 different topics that we could probably do another hour on each. So uh, we'll get me started. To... I can go forever. That's why we have like whole conferences about this. So absolutely. So uh, definitely check out the bear care group. Um, definitely look up uh, Jay and uh, thank you so much for for coming on. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. 
If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.